Flying honeymoon, they say. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. This is Our American Stories, and every once in a while, our producer Jesse takes us on various road trips around the country, stopping along the way for sights and sounds of everyday life in America. Well, this little experience that you're about to hear is different. Most of us have airplane horror stories, and you're about to hear one that might sound all too familiar if you've done any amount of flying recently. Here's Jesse. So we got to the Memphis airport about 6 in the morning for our flight to Phoenix, Arizona. My wife, two kids, and I are heading out west for vacation, and this was the beginning of what would become a very long day for all four of us. Things got off to a shaky start right off the bat as we handed our boarding passes to the first person you meet at the TSA checkpoint. With a quick check of our tickets, my wife and I were allowed to pass. Then the agent looked down at my shy six-year-old daughter and asked, What's your name? My girl was paralyzed in fear. We've never really talked to her about strangers because she generally won't talk to anyone she hasn't known for at least 24 hours. She gave the agent a dead stare. His attention was immediately turned to my 11-year-old son. Who is she to you? The agent asked my son while pointing at my daughter. That's my sister. And the agent had about five or six rapid-fire questions for my boy that he could only know if he was in fact her brother. How old is she? She's six years old. Who are these two? My parents. Where are you going today? Um, Oregon. The entire inquisition was a bit unsettling to say the least. I mean, how have we come to such a suspicious place in society that a mom, dad, and their two kids can't just take a domestic flight without being suspected of child trafficking? Now, I know the TSA is just doing their job. They're making sure the kids we're traveling with actually belong to us. If my little girl was stolen from me and some nosy TSA agent were to help keep her out of harm's way, you bet your ass I'd be grateful. I just resent being treated like a suspect everywhere I go in the name of safety. So we made it through the checkpoint and onto our gate where a young blonde girl was clutching the leash of a massive pit bull who was lunging and growling at everyone who walked by it. (laughs) Men, women, and children still half asleep at 6 in the morning walking around the Memphis airport where a giant angry pit bull was ready to break free from its weak owner's grasp and rip to shreds the first leg it can get between his vice-gripped jaws of thunder. The woman weighed about half as much as the dog did. Every time he would lunge or snap at a child walking by, she would just smile and giggle, trying to keep her shoulder from popping out of its socket. She acted like she was holding back an excited golden retriever who wanted to lick the ice cream off a child's face. Only her dog is a pit bull who's more interested in eating someone's face. Not that I have anything against pit bulls, or a pit bull in an airport for that matter. Ordinarily, the pit bull is a very affectionate and intelligent creature. But this was no ordinary pit bull. And did I mention it's wearing a red sash that says comfort animal on it? I'm not being comforted. Oh, yeah. I'm real comfortable with your pit bull that's lunging at my children. When it walked by my kids, it locked eyes with my daughter and started to walk towards us. Keep that dog away from my children. My wife hissed. Again, smirks from the dog's owner like it was no big deal that her meathead of a pit bull was trying to attack people in an airport on Saturday morning. But no big deal. Let it go. Let other people's stupidity roll away like the water off a duck's back. Breathe. 
As we entered the cabin of the airplane and made our way back to our seats, I saw them. One middle-aged mom on the aisle seat. Her ten-year-old son in the middle. And a four-year-old boy. In the window seat! Directly behind me! No, Trevor. We don't kick the seat in front of us. Oh, God, I can't believe this is happening. All the seats on this plane, and I get the one directly in front of this little terrorist. I'm thirsty. Stop playing with the tray, Trevor. The person in front of you can feel that. Why do airplanes fly? Maybe I should ask for another seat. We're on a broken plane. Oh, God, I hope he shuts up. I gotta go to the bathroom. Just calm down. Mom, I have to go to the bathroom. Mom, I need to go poop! <sighs> if it was possible, I would open the emergency exit and throw you out. <laughs> Even if it caused the plane to crash. I just teach you a lesson. <laughs> Ooh, calm down. He's just a kid. Oh my god, what was that? Did that little b- just rip an old man fart? It was a nasty old man fart. And it smelled like chewing tobacco taste. I rubbed some hand sanitizer on my nose before I buried it into my shirt to avoid the stench. All while this kid continued to kick my seat, play with the tray table, scream at the top of his lungs, fight with his brother, and now ripping nasty grandpa farts. Now, Trevor, if you don't stop kicking the seat in front of you, I'm going to take away one dollar. Is that what you want, Trevor? Give me so we were two hours into this madness with another hour to go before we hit Phoenix when my wife whipped around in her seat, looked directly at the mom behind her and said, Would you please get control of your child? It was quiet now in the cabin for the first time. Though the smell of this kid's flatulence hung in the air like mustard gas in a hot sauna, the storm had finally passed. This kid just saw and heard my wife dominate his mother in public and responded by being quiet and polite for possibly the first time in his life. I wondered if this kid had ever been told no or to be quiet by either of his parents. This entire time, the kid's father sat in the seat across the aisle, completely ignoring the family fart circus that was going on beside him. I mean, kids will be kids. They can be loud and obnoxious at times, just like the rest of us. But look at this kid now. His mother pleaded with him for two hours to be quiet and to stop kicking with no success. Within just a few stern words and some eye contact, my wife effectively put an end to the nonsense that was taking place. Sometimes all it takes to get a kid to behave is a little less than being patient. My kids are extremely well behaved compared to this Tasmanian devil sitting behind me in a cloud of his own carrot farts. Ask your kids to be quiet. If they don't comply, tell them to be quiet. You can't always be nice. It turns crazy kids into psychopathic adults just like me. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And Jesse, we're all nodding and laughing because we have all been there. (laughs) And hopefully that's not your kid. This is Lee Habib, Jesse's story, a good one here on Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and that music cues us for one of our favorite regular features, and that's The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell, and she writes that column weekly for the Wall Street Journal, and for all of you who think you're going to go to the journal and just get highfalutin finance, our favorite part of the journal is the personal journal, and one of our favorite people who writes regularly for the personal journal is Heidi Mitchell, and her latest question How often should I replace my coffee mug in the office? And Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Well, you know, Heidi. I need a cup of coffee right now. I I need two. And I I drink soda. So (laughs) I don't drink coffee. I get my caffeine from Coca Cola. But you could say the same about my Coke mug. So we'll we'll have to. I know it's gross. But let's talk about (laughs) how did. Why this one, Heidi? Is there someone in your office who has what we call the really gross coffee mug? It's more that the devotion to the coffee mug that people who have worked in the same office at the journal or wherever for, forever, they haven't never replaced them. So you'll go to the, you know, the kitchen and wash your mug out or whatever, make microwave your lunch. And in the cabinet are these sort of verboten mugs that have been there for 15, 20 years. <laughs> you're not allowed to use them. Yeah, you're so not the question to... was like, whose are these and why are they so attached to these? And is it unsafe to have the same disgusting brown mug? sitting in there for years yeah and by the way it's not only that you can't use them some people won't even let you look at them or touch them it's so personal (laughs) no don't look at my mug do not look at my mug (laughs) i mean you get attached to these things they're hard to find the perfect mug i i I understand that so so tell me this first heidi do you use the same coffee mug from your early writing days i'm the worst because i i get my coffee from the guy at the cart and I don't spend more than a dollar on my coffee. I probably spend less than any average American on coffee, on any coffee-drinking American, because I just get it from the cup, from the cup, from the guy in the street. I don't have a mug. Oh, my goodness. I don't have a mug. Oh, my goodness. Well, this, this, is, this allows you to be dispassionate about this. And, and what's <laughs> the worry here, Heidi? You, you, you have a mug, or your mug's near one of these other mugs? Because that's what I always worry about. It's like too much contact to that, that diseased or old mug. Do I have anything to worry about? Does anybody have anybody to worry? Anybody have anything to worry about, Heidi? You know, there are few um, germs that can last more than an hour on an inert object like a like a mug. So you really don't have anything to worry about. I mean, they're, they're, it's not like the germs are going to jump from one mug to the next. I guess that they're touching, maybe, but you need a critical mass to get you sick. So you really don't, there's never been a case as far as the NIH or or any major uh, institutions have known about that people were, there was a a mass breakout of infection due to coffee mugs. So your mug sitting next to another mug. It's cool. Your mug's fine. So so what about that, you know, we have a friend in the studio who, when we described the... uh, the office coffee mug talked about his dad's and how his dad would just never ever replace it and you know it would start to get him nervous talk about that also talk about navy sailors who take really great pride in what i call or what you call seasoning the mug seasoning the mug i like that i love this um so so i was talking to uh you know this Dr. Stark, who, um, you know, he was the director of, of infection control at a hospital in Texas for 22 years. And, and you're talking that, you know. about Dr. Jeffrey Stark, a professor of pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And what I love here, Heidi, is that in the end, you always call some expert who has an expertise in almost everything in every walk of American life. I just love that yeah. part of your column. Who knew? 
Who knew? Who knew these people existed? Yep. Right. Well, he, he couldn't find any studies that were specifically on coffee mugs and germs that lurk inside of them. But he did have this great anecdote about um, how, like you said, that in the Navy, they take this great pride. There's a thing called... Um, uh, what do they call it? They call it uh, seasoning their mugs. So, um, so he said there, there was some. If you Google it, you can see on these like Navy blogs that um, the first thing your sergeant will tell you is don't wash your mug, and that supposedly the Navy coffee is just toxic. And so, the, the longer you let it, it, your your coffee mug turn brown over months and years, the better that your coffee will taste. There's not data to back this up, but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. So seasoning your mug, letting it turn, you know how it turns brown on the inside yep. from the black coffee. So, uh, so yeah, so it, there's no data that says that this unwashed mug or this blackness that sits inside of the, of the mug, un, empty, unwashed mug is bad for you. Doesn't harbor germs, doesn't harbor infectious disease, hasn't resulted in any outbreaks. So, um, so you, you know, you don't really need to even wash out your mug. You can just rinse out your mug kind of gross it is kind of like, gross it is kind of but here's where it gets grosser dr stark this is, i'm going to quote from your article heidi and i know writers generally don't like having their own work quoted back at them but here's dr stark's quote which you include in the piece now if you leave cream or sugar in your mug over the weekend now that can certainly cause mold to grow and if your mug had obvious signs of mold you might not want to drink from it talk about that heidi I think that's fairly obvious, but haven't you done that where you like, I mean, my dad's a big, oh, he does this all the time where he buys a coffee in the morning, then he leaves it in the car all day, and then the next morning he's like, meh, and I'll just drink his coffee from the car. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, you can see there's like kind of oil spills on top and all this stuff, the lint in the air that's fallen onto it. It's just disgusting. I don't know why. <laughs> I guess the first thing you do when you get to your office it's just like pour out whatever's in there, rinse it out, and then you can start your Keurig or whatever they have at your office um, and fill your mug. But, um, you know, if it has obvious signs of like, you know, that, that it will cause almost like a crust of that white creamer is just the worst. But milk will curdle too. It's just gross. You can totally tell. Yeah. But, you know, if you rinse it out, it doesn't like the, the I asked about the ceramic and the glaze and that stuff won't, it won't hold in that bacteria or viruses or anything like that. They, they can't live for more than like a year, so a, an hour. So like even overnight, if you had rinsed out your mug and left it sitting there and there's like little bits of coffee in there, it's, it's not going to leave um, any like whatever legionnaires or whatever in there. Well, that's good to know, Heidi. By the way, I have a rule in my family, and that is that dad is not allowed to take takeout food ever again from anywhere because I will take it, stick it underneath the seat, and then I'll leave it underneath the seat for anywhere from two days to two months until one day we all discover that Dad's oh. done it again and there's all kinds of things growing oh in my the car. Gosh. Yeah, it's terrible. I do want to know that how long can food last? Because we have a debate in my house about leftovers. Nobody eats the leftovers. And then four days later, I'm like, I feel like it has to go in the garbage. My mother, I'm living with her in the summer, she's like, oh, no, it's good for a week. I really don't think cooked food <laughs> in the fridge it's good for me. No, I don't Coffee think so Coffee from either. yesterday is also not good. <laughs> no, it's not. So knowing all we know, uh, how should we wash our mugs? And how often should we wash them? Okay, so this is an interesting one. You should wash your mug with like a little dab of soap and some warm water. He says like, a lot of people said, there were some, a lot of things online, but you could take the super hot water that comes out of the spigot sometimes or on one of those, on like, 
mulligan ones and um, culligan ones and, and fill your uh, mug with some hot water and then just swish it around and pour it out. But what you don't want to do is use the sponge because of all the nasty things in your office, besides, you know, that coworker that you don't like, that sponge is the grossest thing in the office. Um, it ha- has everyone's germs on it from all the food that they clean, that clean, the, you know, the place they clean the food off with and their dirty hands and whether or not they used the bathroom and didn't wash their hands and then pick up the sponge. And so the sponge is really disgusting. So don't use that on your, um, on your mug when you're cleaning it. But, you know, if you accidentally use that verboten mug that's sitting in the, in the cabinet and maybe that person's out sick and you've always wanted to try the I Love Mom mug that's sitting in there, um, what's great is that you don't have to worry about getting sick from it because, as Dr. Stark said, um, normal germ- people's normal germs really won't make you sick. He said if they did, then we would have to ban kissing. Well, that's a that's a fair point, though. There are some people I don't know if I want to kiss them because their mouths are receptacles of diseases, too. That's true, too. Oh, well, Heidi, what are you doing? Anything special for your Christmas season? I'm going to my motherland, my homeland of New York City. Well, so good. I'll be there for a few weeks, a few days, just, you know, pretending like I still live there. Good for you. If you have a chance, if you have a chance and you're in Brooklyn, ask a uh-huh. cab driver to take you to Spumoni Gardens. And if you haven't ever been there in your life, You'll thank me after you have their pizza. It's truly Spumoni the most... Gardens. Spumoni Gardens. Pizza Dan- Brooklyn. I'm Googling it as you speak. Avenue U. It's a legend. It's been, on every, it's been featured on almost every cooking network, but my friends in Brooklyn don't know about it. Every time I go back to even Manhattan, I demand to go out to Spumoni Gardens. I'm promising you, you won't regret it. Heidi, as right. always, we love having you on. Uh, have a happy holidays, and we'll look forward to talking to you on the other side. Thank you. Take care. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell. And she, of course, writes that for the personal journal, a part of the Wall Street Journal. Go to WSJ.com to get America's paper. It's simply the best paper in the world. And again, this is Our American Stories. American Stories, The Life of Robert De Niro, born on this day in history in 1943. Two Oscars, of course, one for Vito Colleone as a young man, Godfather II, that was 74, and it's Jake LaMotta in The Raging Bull in 1980. But my goodness, over 100 movies, you name the kind of acting style, and particularly comedy, which he tackled later in life, first in Analyze This, and then, of course, in Meet the Parents and Meet the Fockers. And the guy just nails it. So there was nothing 
Robert De Niro couldn't do. But let's get back to the actors, directors, and artists who talked about De Niro. Here is his pal, his partner. Neither of these guys would have been the people they were without each other. Here's Martin Scorsese. To be certain, he has an extraordinary genius to be able to transform himself, to undergo a metamorphosis, and to simply be, just be the person he's playing, not act, but become and command and inhabit the character. So many of those characters who refuse to forgive themselves. I never knew where he pulled it from. I guess I still don't. Of course, it has to be from his intelligence and his bravery and the analysis of those characters, how he throws himself into the deepest and darkest chasms and always comes out a human being. That's the trick. At times, working with him, I felt, or I, you know, I thought that we had kind of a unique understanding of each other, and I'd hope that the audience would sense that and relate to that connection. That's what kept us pushing, I think, in those pictures. He, he never looks down on the characters he plays. He never judges them. And this is the way he is out of character, too. As a man and a friend, he is compassionate and trustworthy. Yeah, he's a good man. And you heard that again and again. Again and again. Here's Billy Crystal talking about working with Robert De Niro. So we're in Paris. We were doing a press junket for Analyze This in France, and we were very tired. We had done 70 interviews in the one afternoon, and I was exhausted because he insists that we do everything together for the simple reason that I talk. <laughs> we do six minutes at a clip. For five minutes and 55 seconds, I go on and on and on. The interviewer usually says, and you, Mr. De Niro, what do you think? And he'll go... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he said, yeah. We done? <clears throat> That's the Robert De Niro that I know and I love. And Crystal goes on to say even more nice things about this part. He is such an icon to people that when I started working with him years ago, people said to me, what do you call him? You know, what do you call him? You know, what, what's he like? What do you call him? And so here was a little rule of thumb for those of you who are asking the same question, who don't know him like, like I'm fortunate to do. First of all, of course, there's Robert De Niro. That's very respectful, safe, smart. It's his billing. It's a great name. Then there's Bob, Bob De Niro. Now, this is for people who know him, uh, friends that he trusts. He likes having you around. When you're a solid friend with him, you get to call him Bob. Then there's Bobby. Now, Bobby is reserved for movie executives who have never met him. <laughs> well, regardless of what you call him, we're all gathered here tonight for one reason. Fear. <laughs> what would happen to us if we didn't show up? He has made over 60 films, 20 of them last year. <laughs> And over half of them have taken place in New York City. So tonight, my friend, is not only about you, but also about the love you have for that great city where you have lived your entire life. And it's so true. It's a character in so much of the art that he and Scorsese put together and think about his best work and where Raging Bull is set, where Mean Streets is set, where Goodfellas is set, and they knew those streets. And by the way, they grew up down in Soho and Greenwich Village when it was not what it is today. 
and very poor sections of, of New York City are no longer poor, and now even Brooklyn. And they nail New York like nobody else. So let's get into some of the acting. And one of our favorites here is a Bronx tale, where De Niro doesn't play the bad guy. He plays the good guy. He plays a bus driver. And the bus driver has a son who's attracted to this wise guy on a street corner. And the wise guy is slowly pulling the son into his orbit. De Niro is trying to keep his son from the streets and trying to teach him what a working life looks like and what being a man looks like. And there's this incredible scene where the son comes home and he's got a big stash of cash. And Robert De Niro finds it. And he's going to go straight down to that bar where Sonny, played by Chaz Palminteri, is about to get a confrontation with a guy without a gun but with a whole lot of anger. Let's take a listen. We can't accept that. I didn't give it to you. I gave it to your son. He worked for me. That's right, my son. And I don't want my son involved in what goes on here. Involved in what? What are you talking about? Please, I'm not a stupid man, okay? Please, I'm not stupid. You know what I'm talking about. Just stay away from my son, okay? Hey, you stay right over here. See, why don't you go outside? I want to talk to your father. I'll speak to my own son. Coach, I'll wait outside. First of all, I respect you, Lorenzo. You're a stand-up guy. We're from the same neighborhood. But don't ever talk to me like that again. I tell your son to go to school, to go to college. You don't understand. It's not what you say. It's what he sees. It's the clothes. It's the cars. It's the money. It's everything. He tried to throw away his baseball cards the other day because he said Mickey Mantle will never pay my rent. <laughs> he said that to you? <laughs> That's not funny. Not funny when your nine-year-old kid has a bigger bank account than you do. I offered you a job, but you said no to me. That's right, and I say no now. Just leave my son alone, please. Hey! Don't you see how I treat that kid? I treat that kid like he's my son. He ain't your son. He's my son. He's what? He's my son. Come hey, get out of here. I'm not afraid of you. Well, you shouldn't. I know who you are, Sonny. I know what you're capable of, and I would never step out of line. You could ask anybody in this neighborhood who knows me, but this time you're wrong. You don't fool with a man's family. This is my son, not yours. What are you going to do, fight You me? stay away from my get son. Get out of here before I give you a yeah. slap. You just you stay away from my son. Go ahead. Get I don't care who you are. You stay away from the Get out of here. Where's my money, Dad? I left it in there. What? How could you do that, Daddy? It was my money. That's bad money. I don't want you to have that money. Dad, I earned that money. I said I want money. you to stay away from him. Dad, please listen to me. I said you stay away from him. Dad, listen to me. Did you hear what I said? You stay away from him. Said he was right. The working man is a, he's a sucker, Dad. He's a sucker. He's wrong. It don't take much strength to pull a trigger, but try and get up every morning, day after day, and work for a living. Let's see him try that. Then we'll see who's the real tough guy. The working man is the tough guy. Your father's the tough guy. Everybody loves him, just like everybody loves you on the bus. It's the same thing. No, it's not the same. People don't love him. They fear him. There's a difference. You understand, Dad? You will. You will when you get older. I'm sorry I hit you. It's a remarkable piece of work. It's called The Bronx Tale. Rent it. See it. And let me tell you a backstory on that on that movie. Charles Palminteri was an unknown. He was doing a one-man play in Los Angeles, and he played all the characters. You rent it, you'll, you'll see what a rich world he had created. And De Niro got wind of it and calls Chaz Palminteri and says, I love this. Let's make this into a movie. And Chaz Palminteri says, I ain't selling it. I got to start. And he goes, well, of course you're going to. Above the title. There was no negotiation. De Niro wanted to make Palminteri a star, and he did not want to change the play. He just wanted to make it come true. And he made Chaz Palminteri's dreams come true. And uh, it is a perfect 
movie by a remarkable actor. And think about just in the 70s. Mean Streets, The Godfather Part Two, Taxi Driver, Deer Hunter, and Raging Bull. That's just the start. And then you go into the 80s, and it's True Confessions, King of Comedy, The Mission, The Untouchables, Midnight Run, Goodfellas, Awakenings, Cape Fear. And it just goes on and on. And Heat, my favorite. The Al Pacino and Robert De Niro scene everybody been waiting for for all those years. This is Lee Habib, Robert De Niro, in other actors' words. We celebrate his life. He was born on this day in history in 1943. As always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Our American Stories, and now it's time for our story of a song. And we've done a bunch of these, and we love doing them. We did Georgia on My Mind, Light My Fire. Ray Manzarek walked us through that one. Another brick in the wall and how that song came to be. There Goes My Life. We heard the song performed by the guy who wrote that song and why he wrote that song. Very moving. Jesus Take the Wheel, and our favorite here at Our American Stories, Give Me Shelter. And those background tracks, that one lone African-American female backup singer adding this haunting element that makes the song. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear any and all of our stories of a song. And today, it's Chris Christopherson's Why Me? And this is one of the great writers, a terrific actor too, an all-around man's man, ladies' man, everybody loved and loves Chris Christopherson. And my goodness, me and Bobby McGee alone gets you there. He wrote that. And Sunday morning, coming down. Why Me was recorded by Christofferson in 1972. And it was his lone major country hit as a solo recording artist, reaching number one on the Billboard magazine Hot Country Singles charts in 1973. Here, Chris Christofferson tells the story of exactly why and how he came up with that song back in the 1970s. And it had a lot to do with Larry Gatlin and his song and the type of music that Larry was recording at the time. We've been down in Cookville with a bunch of people doing a benefit for, uh, for Dottie West's uh, high school band or something. Then uh, Connie took me over to, to church the next day to, to Jimmy Snow's church. Uh, I, I had a profound uh, religious experience uh, during during uh, the the uh, session, something that I hadn't never had happened to me before, and uh, and uh, why me came out of it. Everybody was kneeling down, and uh, and uh, Jimmy said uh, uh, something like, "If if anybody's lost, please raise their hand." And I was I was kneeling there, and I don't go to I don't go to church a lot, and uh, and uh, the notion of raising my hand was uh, out of out of the question, <laughs> and I thought uh, I I can't imagine who's doing this, and all of a sudden I felt my hand going up, and I was hoping nobody else was looking because everybody was 
had their head over, bend over uh, praying, and then he said, uh, if, if anybody is ready to accept Jesus, something like this, uh, come down to the front of the, of the church. And uh, uh, I thought that would never happen. And uh, and uh, I found myself getting up and walking down with all these people and going down there. And, and I don't really know what he said to me. He said something to me like, are you ready to accept uh, Jesus Christ in your life or something? And I said, I don't know. I, I didn't know what I was doing there. And he put me down. <laughs> he said, kneel down here. And, and he... Uh, I, I can't even remember what he was saying, but whatever it was, was such a release for me that I, w I find myself weeping in public, <laughs> and and uh, and uh, I felt the, this uh, forgiveness that I didn't that I didn't know I even needed. Then Christofferson and this small group with some musicians. By the way, one of them was next to him. His name's Willie Nelson. They performed the song. Why me, Lord? What have I ever done To deserve even one Of the pleasures I've known Tell me, Lord did I ever do that was worth loving you or the kindness you've shown? Lord, help me, Jesus, I've wasted so help me, Jesus, I know why. And there have been a whole bunch of people who've recorded this song. Elvis Presley among them. He incorporated it into his set with the song Why My Lord back in 1974 in January and then right up until his last concert tour. It was first released on the live album Elvis recorded live on stage in Memphis. The recording is from his March 20, 1974 concert in Memphis, Tennessee. He often introduced the song for J.D. Sumner, to sing one of his favorite songs. Sumner would sing the verses, and Elvis would then join in the chorus. Let's take a listen. Thank you. I'd like to ask J.D. Sumner to stand up to sing one of my favorite songs, Why Me, Lord? Oh 
And the favorite version here at Our American Stories involves two of our favorites from two very different walks of life, two different styles of music, the great Johnny Cash and the great Ray Charles. And with that, another story of the song, Chris Christopherson's song, you heard Elvis do it. My goodness, so many people did. Let's listen to Ray and let's listen to Johnny do it. me, Lord, what have I ever done to deserve even one of the blessings I've known? Why me, Lord, what did I ever do that was worth love from you and the kindness you've shown? Wasted it, so help me, Jesus. I know what I am. What I am. Now that I know that I've needed you, so help me, Jesus. My soul's in your hands. This is our American stories, the story of a song. And this one, Why Me, by Chris Christopherson. And let's take it back. Gospel being at the root of so much of American music. Let's listen to Ray Charles, play those keyboards, and hear Johnny Cash take it out. This is Our American Stories. Try me, Lord, if you think there's a way that I can repay what I've taken from you. Maybe, Lord, I could show someone else what I've been through myself on my way back to you. My 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we brought you Pastor Paul Gridell's story when we featured some of the episodes of the Great Comeback series, where Speaker of the House Paul Ryan went around the country visiting private citizens with private efforts to help folks turn around their lives from drugs, poverty, absentee fatherhood, you name it. And one of those people he visited was Pastor Gridell in Elyria, Ohio. And Pastor Gridell, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me, Lee. Now, I can only imagine that you must have never imagined that you'd be hanging out with the Speaker of the House, let alone even being a pastor. And for those of us who missed our story on you and the former drug addict, you helped Greg Bradford. Tell us how you got to where you are today before we discuss our topic today, the government getting in the way of private citizens helping private citizens. I was an addict uh, that struggled uh, for a number of years, from my teenage years all the way through my 20s and into my early 30s. Eventually, I got into heroin, uh, shooting uh, heroin intravenously. Um, and through that, you know, my, my life just fell apart really quickly. Uh, the, the miracle of it is I remained married. I have a wonderful wife. We're celebrating 34 years of marriage uh, this month. But, um, yeah, if somebody would have told me 25 years ago that I'd be a pastor and, and have, a, have a church and, and the Speaker of the House be visiting, I, I would have laughed at him. My life was broken, and, um, you know, I came into a relationship with Christ and uh, turned my life around. I can't take credit for that. I give all credit to him. And through a series of events, ended up opening up a church in South Illyria, which is uh, poverty-stricken and uh, great people. Uh, just needing a, a little bit of a helping hand. And um, Greg Bradford, one of the people that we first started helping, even before our church was started, but we started a church in South Elyria in 2010, ended up purchasing a large school building. Half of it is the church, and the other half we want to turn into a, a home for struggling women. And so you were, you were helping Paul, and you were doing what, well, what your God had commanded to do, which was to help help the least of these and to help everyone in the end and to serve and love folks before we get into that story talk about what got you off the drugs i mean what was that defining moment in your life where you said i'm not doing this anymore yeah you know one of the defining moments i had two of them uh one of the defining moments is I, i walked into my son's room when he was six months old and i just got done shooting dope and uh i walked in there i saw this little guy in a crib and I remember just standing over him and, and begin to weep uh, because I knew that this little guy deserved the best father that any that anybody could be, and and I knew the man that I was. I was I was an addict, and you know, just because somebody's addicted doesn't mean that they're a hopeless case or they're a bad person. Nobody nobody. I, that was not my goal to be an addict, um, but the reality of of it, it was I was, and I, I didn't know where to go for help. Back then, there was even less treatment centers, but I did end up going into a treatment center. Um, I did 30 days in that. When I, when I got out, I actually got indicted on some drug charges. Uh, by the miracle of God, I, I pled out to a six-month, uh, mis- there was a misdemeanor case, uh, pled down from felonies, six months probation, a $500 fine. But I still struggled because, uh, you know, I was, I was free physically from the drugs, but emotionally all the pain and the scarring was still there. 
And uh, a number of years later, in 1994, uh, I came into a, a relationship with Jesus Christ, and, and that relationship um, set me free, and I haven't struggled since. And so I believe uh, with all my heart that, you know, God is the answer, um, but that we are called by God to help people. Um, I, I believe that if, if a church is in a community, then the community should benefit from that church being there. So that's the whole model of what we do. Our scripture verses is Matthew chapter 25, 35, and 36. You mentioned it. When when you feed uh, the least of these, you, you feed me, is what Christ says. And so true. And, and Pastor, what were you doing at that time for a living? You know, you knew you were an addict. You knew you didn't want to be this kind of father. Talk just a little bit about the grip this holds on people. For anybody who has an addict son or an addict daughter, walk them through it so they can understand it. You were an addict. Uh, and what were you doing for a living at that time? Well, you know, I started out, I, I, uh, I, I graduated from high school. I had a pretty uh, normal IQ. I was fairly intelligent. I was a hard worker. I became a welder and worked in a few factories and a machine shop. We got married when I was 23 years old to my wife that I'm still with, a beautiful lady named Cindy. Uh, we got married in Vegas, and life was good at the beginning, although, you know, I had those party party times on the weekends. But eventually, it just continued to uh, go down, and I got into pills, uh, and that's how most people get addicted to heroin nowadays. I got exposed to uh, Percocets and Percodans, Vicodins. Uh, I was a power lifter, and, and so I experienced some injuries, and, you know, the doctor prescribed those, and, and I was just the type of person that, you know, just couldn't say no once I had it. And I got to the point, uh, you know, I held a job up until the uh, last couple years of my addiction. I was a functioning addict, um, but the last couple years when I got into shooting heroin, I got into it because I could not get enough pills to sustain my, my addiction. And heroin at the time was just starting to transition over where it was beginning to be more pure and cheaper. And it was cheaper than the pills, and you could always find heroin on the streets where, unlike sometimes, pills would dry up. You know, the last thing I thought I would ever be doing is sticking a needle in my arm. But when you're so dope sick from uh, withdrawn from uh, opiates, you, you come to a point in your life where it's it's the most desperate experience you can ever experience. And, and uh, again, like I said, I was not a hardcore guy. I, I, I was a guy that loved my wife. I, I, I ran with some pretty rough guys. But the reality is you, you don't realize what your bottom is and your potential for a bottom until you've been physically addicted to some type of, of substance. It takes people down such a dark road, but there's still people. I don't, I don't care if an addict is an addict. He's still a person, and he deserves a helping hand. So true. No matter how many times he stumbles. So true, Pastor. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that helping hand. Pastor Paul Gridell's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Pastor Paul Gridell, his story and his church's story, and the story of the city that church is in, Elyria, Ohio. And Pastor, before we get into the story of what happened to your building, tell us a little bit about your town. We've been reading about these rural towns in America and what I call the post-industrial age uh, towns that had a manufacturing base and then lost it. Some would actually call it Trump country. That is, the areas of the country where President Donald Trump did well. And it turns out there's a, 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 a lot of people in this country who were not being listened to. Their problems were not being heard. Uh, talk about this place and this city, because it sounds like it's one of those places. It is very much the model of that place. Uh, Elyria is about 50,000 people. Uh, it's not a huge town. It's just south of Lorraine. Now, Lorraine was a huge manufacturing, had a shipyard in the 70s, I believe 60s and 70s, large manufacturing steel mills. And Elyria was kind of like a suburb of Lorraine back a number of years ago. And um, Lyria itself had manufacturing. Now a large majority of the manufacturing has left. Uh, the area of South Elyria that we're in right now is about 50% poverty rate, and there's just not jobs available to the people. And the, and the jobs that are available are service jobs, you know, $10 an hour with no benefits. And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of people that uh, are on assistance here in Elyria, and um, there's a great need. A lot of it comes down to lack of employment. The other thing I just want to touch on this real quick is, you know, we have stigmatized addicts to the point where we think throwing them in prison or throwing them in jail is the answer. And then we give them a felony record and we make it so difficult for a person to get out of the lifestyle of drugs uh, because when they get out, uh, many of them were, you know, small time dealers that were selling to support their habit. And now that they have a felony record, uh, they want to change their life. They want to get a job. We, we work with people to get jobs, but that felony conviction is, and, and now with the Internet, it is so hard to, to get away from your past. We've created a society that is not hireable, even when people want to get out of that lifestyle. It's so true, and uh, we're glad you're bringing that point up, and we focus on this on our American stories because we tell the stories the media just aren't telling or they're not interested in because they're not quite sensational enough. But my goodness, right. if it's happening to your family, if it's happening to your town, it's news and you want the rest of the country to hear about it. And folks, it's coming to a town near you. If the main business in your town pulls out, what happens to the men and women in that town? And when there are no jobs, there is no hope. And when there's no hope, people turn to other means. We can't oh, underestimate the power and the dignity of work. Paul, now talk, talk to us about this uh, elementary school that you were trying to convert into part church and part rehab center. And what, what did you run up against, and how can we help? Well, you know, we, uh, we began leasing a building in 2012, which was the school that we ended up purchasing. Um, so in 2012, we leased at a very reasonable rate. We were doing the school uh, system a, a favor also because when it was vacant, the windows were being broken out of it. And so we came in and did some improvements. The windows started stopped getting broken. I think a lot of the children that were breaking them now come to church to walk here from the neighborhood. Um, but um, in 2015, the school board decided that they wanted to sell it and put it up for auction. Uh, we ended up getting it. Uh, we got uh, 62,000 square feet on seven acres of land for $50,000. 
and um, that was that's just a miracle. Uh, the building's in great shape. Um, but what we didn't know was we were changing the use of the building, and when we changed the use of the building from a place of education to a place of assembly, it completely changes the fire code and, and building uh, code requirements. Uh, so last summer, um, they found us in violation of those those codes, and we ended up having to hold all of our services uh, for three months uh, in the summer. Uh, luckily, it was in the summer, and, and we rented a big tent, put it in the parking lot. So every Sunday, you'd find 250 people, a couple hundred people out there worshiping, and uh, we do a Friday night service also. Friday nights is a hard night for people that are trying to get off and out of the party style lifestyle. And uh, so we have Friday services available, and they're, they're quite popular. Uh, so Friday and Sunday, we were out there in the parking lot for three months while we were trying to uh, work with the city. Um, the improvements that they want to be done, we have now got a, a temp- temporary occupancy permit. Uh, the, the improvements that they want cost about $72,000. Um, we have installed, we replaced all the interior doors with fire rated doors. Uh, that cost us $42,000. Uh, we are in the process of trying to pay for those doors now. Uh, we still have a fire alarm system that we have to install that's going to be another 20 some thousand dollars. So right now we are trying to raise, and, and what this has done, Unfortunately, uh, all the progress that we were trying to, to make in Creation House, we actually don't call it a, a rehab. We call it a home. Um, uh, all the, the resources that we're going for that has now gone to the church um, um, efforts, not resources, but efforts to get the church back into uh, code according to the city. So the, the emphasis on Creation House has taken a second seat to trying to get this occupancy permit, full-time occupancy, for the church building so that we can move forward in opening up the home of Creation House. In the end, what, what's, the, uh, what's the amount you're looking to raise? What's the amount you need? Paul? We need to raise about $75,000. So we are uh, asking people to, to make, <clears throat> make donations. We make it very easy to give, and any amount is appreciated. Something I want to mention, too, we... We feed over 500 people a week out of this building. We, we opened up a food pantry, and uh, 500 people come through these doors on Fridays to get bags of groceries for their families. And it's a safety net because there's, there's never enough. When it, if somebody's on assistance and they've got you know, three children, uh, the society thinks that that person is cheating the system. I, I'm, I'm here to tell you that, you know what, the government keeps people in, in bondage because they give them just enough and make it difficult to get off of it. And so we're the safety net. And we encourage people, you know, to be the head, not the tail, that you can start your own business. And and uh, don't put your trust in the government. Put your trust in the Lord. And, um, and then we go out uh, every week and feed over 100 people that are homeless. Um, so this building is used to benefit the community, and the, and the community uh, benefits quite greatly from it and and if this building was to shut down or we're we're forced to go outside the the tragedy of that last year was we had to shut down that pantry um when we had to go out in the parking lot and pastor Um, what's the email address what's the website that people can go to 
Yeah, you, if you go to beyondthewallschurch.com, there's a donate button on there, but you can also go there and just see uh, the ministries that, that this church provides to the community. And it's not restricted to people that come to this church. We, we help people no matter what. If, if they come in the doors or they make a phone call, we'll, we'll try to get them help or to a place where they can get help. So it's beyondthewallschurch.com. And if you want to see the home that we want to open up for women, which will be no cost to them, nothing, just desire to get out of that lifestyle, you can go to creationhouse.org. And both of those websites have donate buttons on them. We also have another way to give. This is really cool. Thank you to technology, and I have great people on staff. Otherwise, I'd still be uh, operating in, in the 20th century. But they can just dial 84321 on their phone, on their cell phone, and text in the amount that they want to give. They'll be prompted to set up an account, but all you got to do is, is text in 84321. Get that on your keypad, and uh, it'll be prompted for the steps there. Well, Pastor, thanks for all that you do. We'd like to check in with you every uh, three months or so just to see what's happening. Tell us a few stories about what's going on, and offline, I'd love to talk to you about how we can help. That's beyondthewallschurch.com, creationhouse.org, or just hit the numbers 84321 on your cell phone and text in a donation. This is Lee Habib, Correct. Pastor Paul Grodell's story, the city of Elyria, Ohio's story, here on Our American Stories. stories and we love the stays and histories and we also love music and by the way we've done so many great music stories from the story of the song to just our story of robert plant's life billy joel's frank sinatra's miles davis i'm at ertigan the incredible founder of atlantic records and it goes on and on louis armstrong and go to ouramericannetwork.org and go into the categories and just look up what we do in music and it's all over the place and all of that leads me to, well, Jesse's This Week in Music History. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. snooping on the door. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. snooping on the door. You can wag your tail, but I ain't gonna feed you no more. 
This week in music history, 1952, the original version of Hound Dog was recorded by Willie Mae Big Mama Thornton. It went on to top the Billboard R&B chart for seven weeks, selling nearly two million copies. The best-known version of Hound Dog is, of course, the 1956 recording by Elvis Presley, which sold about 10 million copies globally. And in 1966, Love and Spoonful started a three-week run at number one on the U.S. Singles Chart with Summer in the City. The song features a series of car horns during the instrumental bridge, starting with a Volkswagen Beetle horn and ends up with a jackhammer sound in order to give the impression of sounds of summer in the city. I am the god of hellfire, and I bring you fire. And in 1968, Fire by the Crazy World of Arthur Brown was at number one on the UK singles chart. As part of his act, Brown would perform on the stage with his hat set on fire. It reached number two in the US Billboard charts, number 19 on Australia, number three in Germany, four in France, six in the Netherlands, number seven in Australia, number eight in Ireland, and number 18 in Finland. Fire sold over one million copies and was awarded a gold disc. And in 1971, The Who released their fifth studio album called Who's Next, which featured the classic song Won't Get Fooled Again. The album was viewed by critics as The Who's best record and one of the greatest rock albums of all time. And this week in music history, 1960, Elvis Presley started a five-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with It's Now or Never. Song, which was based on the Italian song O Solo Mio, gave Presley his first post army number one hit, selling in excess of 25 million copies worldwide, his biggest international single ever. This very same week in music history, just 17 years later in 1977, Elvis Presley was found dead lying on the floor in his bathroom by his girlfriend. He had been reading a book called The Scientific Search for Jesus. He died of heart failure at the age of 42. Elvis Presley holds the record for the most entries on the U.S. Hot 100 chart with 154. And this week in music history, 1969, the Woodstock Festival was held in Max Yasger's 600-acre farm in Bethel, outside of New York. Attended by over 400,000 people, the event featured Jimi Hendrix, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Santana, The Who, CCR, The Grateful Dead, Janis Joplin, among many others. During the three-day event, there were three deaths, two births, and four miscarriages. And in 2001, this week in music history, a pizza-stained piece of paper signed by three of the four Beatles sold for $48,000 to an anonymous collector in an auction in Melbourne. John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and George Harrison all signed the paper during their 1964 tour of Australia. Drummer Ringo Starr had laryngitis and was not on the tour. And in 2008, U.S. record producer Jerry Wexler, who influenced the careers of singers including Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, and Bob Dylan, 
died at his home in Sarasota, Florida, aged 91. Wexler produced Aretha Franklin's Respect and the Wilson Pickett song in the Midnight Hour. He also helped Bob Dylan win his first Grammy Award by producing the 1979 album Slow Train Coming. He also coined the term rhythm and blues while writing for Billboard magazine in the late 1940s. You can hear our special presentation on the life of Jerry Wexler at OurAmericanNetwork.org. In 1991, Nirvana shot the video for Smells Like Teen Spirit at GMT Studios in Culver City, California, costing less than $50,000 to make. The shoot features real Nirvana fans as the audience. The video won Nirvana the Best New Artist and Best Alternative Group Awards in the 1992 MTV Music Awards. And in the year 2000, the Guinness Book of World Records named Teen Spirit the most played video on MTV Europe. This week in music history, 1986, Bon Jovi released their third studio album, Slippery When Wet, which peaked at number one on the U.S. charts, going on to sell over 28 million copies worldwide. The set featured two U.S. chart toppers, You Give Love a Bad Name and Living on a Prayer. John Bon Jovi was initially reluctant to include Living on a Prayer on the album, believing that it was just not good enough. Richie Sambora was convinced that it was a hit song in the making, and so the band re-recorded it, releasing the second version on the final album. It became one of the band's most popular and well-known songs. And in 1967, the Beatles scored their 14th U.S. number one single with All You Need Is Love. Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Eric Clapton, and Keith Moon all sung backing vocals on this track. John Lennon's handwritten lyrics for the song sold for upwards of $1.5 million in the summer of 2005. Lennon left them in the BBC studios after the Beatles' last live television appearance, and they were salvaged by an employee. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Nothing you can say but you can learn how to play the game. In 2007, the song was used as an advertising campaign for Love's Diapers, with the lyrics changed to, All You Need Is Love's. All you need is love. <laughs> All you need is love. And in 1965, this week in music history, Sonny and Cher started a three-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with I Got You, Babe. They say we're young and we don't. Sonny Bono is said to have been inspired to write the song to capitalize on the popularity of the term babe, as heard in Bob Dylan's It Ain't Me Babe. It sold more than one million copies and was certified gold. A 1993 version by Cher, starring Beavis and Butthead, bubbled just under the Hot 100 chart. They say I love one yes. thing around yes. For it's earned and money has all been spent and that's This Week in Music History. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. I got you. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> babe. I got you, babe. I got you, babe. I got flowers in the spring. I got you. You are my ring I'll let them say You're a clown And if I get scared 
And this is Our American Stories. And I love it when Jesse just hits the Judge Judy soundboard for a while. What? What? And we love doing Judge Judy cases. That's what. And, well, what's the case today that we're going to be looking at, Greg? What did you dig up? I dug up the case of the irresponsible drug dealer. And uh, the reason I picked this case is because, uh, yeah, he's an irresponsible drug dealer, but there is some context to be found out here, and uh, I think it's going to have a little bit of a twist. Good. 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 Well, let's take a listen. What's the case about? Melissa called Miss Shelley and said, Edward, just got busted. You bailed him out. Yes, ma'am. An admitted drug user helps a dealer go free. Mr. Milan says it was to your benefit to get him out of jail. But did she set up this deal? The arrangement was Amy said, you don't worry, you guys, I'll help you out. I'll help you pay this. Out of fear of getting cut off? She thought I was still going to be able to supply her. Judge Judy. Amy Shelley is suing her former friend, Edward Milan, for a loan to bail him out of jail. Edward says he never asked for Amy's help. All rise. All right, Hangler, set us up. Um, so Edward, he's the man that bailed. He got bailed out of jail. He's a former drug dealer, and uh, just we're gonna find out now about Melissa. Yeah, uh, she about she's uh, the friend, or no, she's actually the girlfriend of Edward, the drug dealer. Fight's been sworn in, Judge. You may be seated. Is your name Folks Melissa? Stand over there. I assume that since you're standing with the defendant, you are a witness for the defendant. Is that right? Yes. How long have you been his girlfriend? Almost three years. You have children together? Correct. How many? One daughter. How old? 19 months. How many times has he been arrested since you've known him? Twice. For what? Um, possession. And... Possession of drugs? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And? Uh, running from the cops. I guess that's it. What were you arrested for twice, sir, since you've been involved with the lovely Melissa? Uh, I've got arrested for possession, battery, and... Uh... Battery of whom? Battery of my girlfriend and... Uh, Which girlfriend? Melissa. I just actually pushed her, but that's battery. If you push somebody, that's battery. That and uh, along with... Let me see. That, that's it. Those two things. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. What happens next, Angler? Edward, the drug dealer, was bailed out by his girlfriend, 
we just heard from her, Melissa, her friend, Amy Shelley. Now, Miss Shelley, she's the one of Edward's customers. And we'll find out it's her meth customer. Well, let's hear how these friends ended up in Judge Judy's courtroom. Now, the plaintiff, Miss Shelley, was a friend of the lovely Melissa, and you got yourself arrested. So Melissa called Miss Shelley and said, what's your first name? Edward. Edward just got busted for the first time since you've known her or the second time since you've known her? First time. So that must have been for drugs. That was for a, a number of things. Being intoxicated, the drugs, and the uh, battery. And could you please help me and get him out of jail? That was the call. Is that right? Yes. How long had you and Miss Shelley been friends? Over 20 years. Have you used drugs with her? I'm asking you a question. Don't think about the answer. Just give me the answer. Yes. Frequently? Not in a while. Not in how long? A long time. So as far as you knew, she was not using drugs? At the time? Yes. Yes. Oh, she was? No. Pardon me. Shh. My apologies, Your Honor. At the time you called her to bail out Edward, did you think Miss Shelley was using drugs? Yes. And you? No, I was pregnant. What kind of drugs was Miss Shelley using? Meth. And where was she getting it from? Edward. So this is what the case is all about. You bailed him out. It's $2,500. $1,000 he gave you back. Correct. But you signed for the bail. Correct. According to you, he was supposed to pay for the bail. Make periodic payments to the bail bondsman. Yes, ma'am. He did not. No, ma'am. You are stuck with it. So her meth dealer boyfriend <laughs> ditched her bail money. This is a good one, Gangler. What happens next? All right, now we're going to, Judge Judy's going to zoom in on Edward's employment and his recent criminal history. What do you do for a living, Edward? I just recently started working for Local 510. It's an event services, like event management for car shows, setting up for car shows. What did you do before that? Uh, before that, I actually wasn't working. And before that, I was doing, uh, you know, construction How countertops. How long were you a drug dealer? Uh, on and off for a couple years. Starting when and finishing when? Finishing the day I went to jail. I went and spent like two and a half months there then. You after, mean on this arrest? Yeah, on this arrest. When were you arrested for battery of Melissa? That day. Of Melissa? That day. It all happened all at once. Since April 24, 2006, you have had no arrest. Is no that arrest. what you're telling me? Yeah, no arrest. Except for the day and a half after I was bailed out, which I was bailed out on the 26th of April, same, the same day that I was arrested. I went right back to jail a day and a half later because of violation of probation. What probation? The probation that I was on originally, which was felony evasion, which is running from the police in my car. That's what put me on probation. Why were you running from the police? Oh, I, had, I was on... Edward, why I was on running? drugs myself. So you were on probation for driving while under the influence of drugs? No, no, I, they didn't give me an under the influence charge, but, you know, I was a user. So basically, um, I got the felony evasion, and that gave me the felony probation, which uh, I, I, I violated when I, when I got this case. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. What, <laughs> does Judge Judy keep it together here? I Usually, well, like you up for breakfast. No, actually... <laughs> Uh, what you're going to catch on, what, what we're noticing here is is something that's going to unpack itself a little bit in, in a little bit, and that this guy is transparent. You can tell there's been a transformation in his heart and his life because he's a straight shooter. You notice Judge Duty's called up the other two and that's said, true. I want straight answers right away because they're hesitating. This guy is telling her more than what she's asking. So you know something's going on here. Well, let's find out. How long had you been selling uh, Miss Shelley drugs? Probably about a year. Just meth? Yeah, that's it. Where were you getting it from? Where was I getting it from? From other sources. 
How many customers did you have? Not many. You know, just basically trying to get by. How many? Probably about five. And you made a living doing this? Uh, semi. A semi-living, not much. Okay. Your daughter's 19 months old. Yes. But since then, I've cleaned up. You know, I've been through a program. I've been clean for like two years since Good. this incident happened. Fine. Now, you've been clean for two years, Edward. What program have you been through? Uh, it's called the Henry Olaf program. It's in San Francisco, California. Part of that program is accepting responsibility for your own actions? Correct. That it's not anybody else's fault if bad things happen to you? It's your fault? You're My supposed fault. to take care of it? You were arrested for felony possession on the 24th of April, 2006? Correct. Whose fault is that? Mine. Whose responsibility is it to clean up after you? Uh, my, my responsibility to clean up after myself. How much was your bail? 25000 10% of that, $2,500. So $2, yeah. How much did you pay? What I paid was nothing. My girlfriend used my money to pay for the bail. She gave the money to Amy. How much? I think it was 1000 and then she also uh, paid a couple of payments because Amy was harassing her and texting her stuff. <laughs> so, so far... Melissa used your money yeah. to pay her the $1,000 up front. Correct. And then Melissa used her money to make a couple of payments. Correct. On the other 1500 Correct. So, so far, I hear you not taking responsibility, Edward. Well, actually... I hear Melissa taking responsibility for your few payments. I was in jail. But I don't hear you taking responsibility. I was in jail. Did you give the money back to her? Did I give the money back to Melissa? Yes. Actually, no, I didn't pay Melissa back. Why? That's your program. Well, yeah. Well, what happened was, the arrangement was, and I remember this clearly, Amy said, you don't worry, you guys, I'll help you out. I'll help you pay this, okay? Helping me pay this for the simple fact that she probably thought, well, my thinking is, she thought I was still going to be able to supply her. But when I was trying to clean myself up, I didn't, okay, want, I didn't want anything to do with that, you know? <laughs> I, I want that part of my life to be over, so. Okay. Well, you know, he does sound pretty straight. Yeah. So what happens next? I don't know. Let's listen to her wrap it up. You've been honest with me so far, yeah. Edward. So I see no reason to think that you weren't honest about this. I'm not even going to ask Miss Shelley about your drug use, Miss Shelley. Absolutely. Absolutely what? By all means, ask. Did you ever use meth? I have indeed, yes, Your Honor. Okay. Did you ever get it from Edward? I did on two occasions, Your Honor. Uh, just all? And you did? Yes. Perfect. I love everybody when they're honest. It makes my life so much easier. Edward, I want to explain something to you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you ensure that what you learned in the program in San Francisco is emblazoned in your memory. Oh, it is. Not yet. Who was selling drugs? Myself. Who was making money from the sale of drugs? Myself. Who knew that it was against the law? Me. Who took the risk of selling the drugs? I did. Who got arrested? I did. Who got bailed out? I did. Whose responsibility is it? It's my responsibility. Then you pay the tab, Edward. That's what it means to accept the responsibility. Do you understand? I understand. Judgment for the plaintiff in the amount of $1,100. That's all. Yeah, thank, thank you, you Your Honor. Oh, he's our excuse. You may step out. Wow, this is why people love Judge Judy. Mm -hmm. she, yes! <laughs> yes, and she doesn't rip this guy, though. I mean, this no. is a very unique Judge Judy. She could see, she could see that there was some change. Yep, but not all the way. Not all, yeah, not all the way. I mean, he's still hanging on, but uh, it's also refreshing to see that uh, somebody with so much trouble can also turn around. This is our American stories. Judge Judy, thanks, Hengler. And uh, find some more for us. We love the show. It's the biggest show on television. She's got the biggest contract in the history of television. And I know sometimes you're busy, you're at work, you can't catch it. Sometimes we can't either. 
And that's why Hengler's here. And he brings us our favorite and some of the best and more interesting Judge Judy's here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories. 